Well, Merry Christmas to you, Providence, and it's good to see you here this morning. I just want to mention uh, we're just so proud of you as a church in embracing the uh, immigrants that have come from Venezuela. Uh, it has always been my prayer that back in the early days, it was a houseless person would walk in on a Sunday morning, and we would just say, how do we love this person? And there was an edge to our church in those early days. Um, that I think made us all just trust the Lord. And sometimes I wonder as we get bigger and we have a building, we have a budget, and we now pay people, you know, uh, if we lose that edge, you know. So when 52 people show up after service last Sunday, it is a joy to my heart to, like, we don't even have to meet. Like, the squad just goes. And uh, so just proud of you. This, this is the gospel lived out, and realize that they are here for us, right? They're here to make all of us think about our values, our pocketbooks, our schedules, and all of that. So just proud of the way you uh, worked and continue to work. And, you know, I got the update on Friday that more are coming because they're basically, they're figuring out where the refugee, uh, no, the uh, sanctuary states, yes. And so they're just... They're picking them, and they're just jumping on buses and, and coming here. So who knows what God has in store for us. We do know that when we engage in that, we will be formed, and they will be blessed, and the gospel will shine. So um, keep up the good work uh, in, in doing this. And thank you, Renuevo, for partnering with us on that, too. Uh, and it's just been fun uh, to do that together with you. Uh, it was five years ago. A man in our congregation, if you guys remember a guy named Julian Mestis, uh, introduced uh, me to uh, Emmanuel and Kelly and Gulu. And they came here on a Sunday to visit, uh, kind of leaving a church situation that was very difficult. Uh, and so um, I went to lunch with them with my wife and just struck up a conversation with them and tried to minister to them in a time of hurt. Uh, and heard their story. Emmanuel was born in the Democratic Republic of Congo and uh, is, was here in Denver at Denver Seminary getting his Master's of Divinity. He now has finished that and he's getting his PhD and is uh, studying the Trinity. He's currently a Bible teacher here in town at a Christian school. Him and his wife Kelly have two kids. He said he enjoys playing board games, eating cinnamon rolls, uh, and this is his quote, he incinerates people on the basketball court. <laughs> so there's no humility there, so we shall see. Uh, but he likes Star Wars and superhero movies, likes meeting new people, spend time uh, talking with the Lord and talking about the Lord. Just re-engaged conversations with him about three or four months ago and invited him to come speak here uh, at Providence. So we'll hear the word from him this morning. Let's welcome Emmanuel Angulu. I'm excited to be with you guys this morning. If you would, if you haven't already, turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 of our text. Uh, we're beginning a new series here, a new Advent series, Prepare Ourselves for Christmas in Denver. And in this series, we are looking at a passage that uh, is somewhat familiar to most of us who grew up in the church and is found in 1 Corinthians 13. And we want to focus on three things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. And he says this, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, 
But the greatest of these is love. So for the next three weeks, we're going to focus on these three virtues, you might say, that Paul talks about. So I encourage you to come back, invite your neighbors to be a part of what's happening here. And here's the, 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 the point. When we live out, when we apply these attributes to our lives, the world around us will see that, will be affected by that. Why? Because these things are counterculture. They're not what we're taught in school. They're not what we're taught at work. But when we live these things out in our lives, we are in some ways making the government, our, our, our communities insecure, nervous because of what we are doing. And so today I want to focus on the first one, the idea of faith. Faith. So Romans chapter 1, verse 16 through 17. So if you would, uh, please read this text with me once more. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First the Jews, then the Gentiles. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me briefly? Lord Almighty, we are here because of you. We move, we have our breath, our existence because of you. And so we want to acknowledge that right now. We're here because of your sacrifice on our behalf. So Lord, this morning as we have sung, as we have heard testimony and, and heard what you are doing uh, in us, among us, around us, we ask that those things would sink into our minds, into our hearts, forming us to be your image bearers in this world. Father, as I speak, Lord, may it not be my words, may, may it be yours. May it be pleasing to you first and foremost. And may it edify, encourage, equip us for what you have for us. All this in Jesus' mighty name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. A very well-known scholar uh, once recently said to me, he says, in our country, in America, when our political party wins, and they're the ones who are, are running the government, and when people uh, fight or talk or challenge that particular uh, political party, we turn to Romans chapter 13. And we tell those people who are challenging our political party, hey, submit to the government because God has put them in charge. <laughs> However, when the opposing party wins, we go to Revelation 13. <laughs> the government is like Babylon. They're evil. They're corrupt. Fight against them. I'm just starting. Right, this is the way Christians or evangelicals in our world Talk about our government. Showing that our allegiance, our loyalty is first and foremost to our political parties. To the people who think like us, who want to do things that we think are best. In some ways we compromise scripture and we interpret it in light of what we desire. This is not true the country of my birth. As Jason mentioned, I was born in the DRC, now known as the 
Congo for short. Born into a Christian family. Uh, I have four siblings. So I'm the oldest. Uh, we were a handful growing up, literally, to my parents. And most of us were born there. Two of them were born here. Um, growing up there, I experienced life differently than we do here in the States. Right? You were not guaranteed to come back home when you went to school that morning. Your parents might not be home when you got home that particular evening. In fact, I remember one time we're driving from the hospital after my mom delivered my, my, my second brother, or my, my first brother, I guess. There's two of them, three of us, um, Joel. And we're driving back home, and we get pulled over by soldiers with rifles. And they're asking my parents certain questions about the vehicle that we have. And eventually they said, hey, you and your wife get out. We're going to drive and take your kids wherever we want to go, meet us at a certain location. And my parents couldn't say anything about that. They couldn't call the cops. They couldn't press charges just the way life was. Right, we in the States, we have choices, but in the Congo, that is not the case. When I was about four years old, there was an uprising to remove the current dictator, Mobutu. My parents, because they were indirectly involved with the government, they had to flee, or their lives would be gone, including ours. And through a process, they came to the States. My sister and I remained in the Congo until I was about eight years old. But I saw things. I experienced things that a four, a five, a six-year-old should not have to experience or see. When I was eight, by the grace of God, my sister and I were able to come to the States, Dallas, Fort Worth. Any Texas people here? Texas? Yeah, Texas. Woo, UT, yeah, it's hot. <laughs> uh, we moved there, and I remember we arrived on the 26th of December. January, we attended school for the first time. My parents, my mom and my, uh, walked my, my sister and I to our class along with some people who were at the school. And walk into this room, I don't speak English. All I know is hello and seven, which I said seven. That's all I knew. Walk into this room and I sit down at a, at a particular desk. And essentially what uh, begins to take place shortly after I sit down is someone starts speaking in this thing above me, which I never encountered before. And eventually after he starts, he's finished speaking, uh, they ask us to all stand up. The kids stand up, put your hand on your heart, and begin to cite the Pledge of Allegiance. I'm like, what is happening right now? <laughs> like, literally, like, like, what's going on? Like, we're pledging our allegiance to a flag or to a nation. Like, what is this? Right? At that point in my life, I grew up in the Christian family, so I was somewhat aware of who the Lord was. But I'm like, why are we pledging allegiance? Why are we praying? Why are we in some ways worshiping a, a nation or, or a flag? So I began to wrestle with what that means. In our passage, Paul challenges us to consider where our loyalty, you might say our allegiance, our commitments are. Just a brief context, Paul's writing to Christians who are living at, at the heart of the most powerful empire in the history of the world. And Paul's writing them, they're, they're Jews and Gentiles, and they're fighting each other, but Paul reminds them of what is important. And our passage today has been read by many people throughout history. In fact, it's so powerful that many great leaders throughout church history have been impacted by this particular text. So Paul reminds us, in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The word gospel in Greek is euangelion. Everyone say euangelion. euangelion. 
you now can speak Greek. The word basically means good news. Good news. Simply. It was used in religious circles and outside of religious circles. Right? So, for example, when you receive a promotion or a raise at work, typically that's what? Good news. When your spouse takes you on this amazing or beautiful surprise date, that's usually good news. When your son or daughter is accomplishing something great, that is called good news. People in the Congo, when Mobutu fled, this evil dictator, it was good news. The word simply means good news. And for the Romans who were living in their day, this idea of good news Yeah, it was used every single day, but it found its most ultimate definition in one particular figure. And this figure was a guy named Augustus. Who's Augustus? Well, Augustus was the first Roman emperor, the adopted son of the famous Julius Caesar, who was assassinated. And what he did was he, after defeating his enemies, Mark Anthony to be precise, He became the most powerful person in the Roman Empire, the wealthiest, most prestigious person. And what he did is he ended war. He ended violence for the Roman people. And it was so great that people said, hey, we're going to dedicate a whole month after you. Name the name of August. On his birthday, celebrations took place across the empire talking about how he's so great. And they said, Augustus, it is your birth, your life, your reign, your kingdom that has brought good news. Because you've brought peace in a broken, in a dark world. I mean, we got to know, if you're living in Rome prior to Augustus, a lot of civil wars are happening. Brother versus brother. You're unsure who the next leader will be. You're unsure if you will survive or if people will come and kill you and take your wealth. A very, very dark time. And so Augustus was seen as the one who brought about good news because he brought about the Pax Romana. He brought about peace. This is the idea of eugelion, gospel, for most first century thinkers. And readers. However, when Paul uses this, he says, no. The good news is not about Augustus. It's about someone else. A different person who not only brought peace for some, but peace for the whole world. Who not only defeated uh, people we fight against, but defeated the people or the entities that we cannot defeat. Death, sin, evil. All the different isms out there we cannot seem to get over. This person actually provides a way for us to overcome them. And it happens through his birth, through his life, and ironically through his death and his resurrection. So what Paul says, the gospel is that God's kingdom has come through the person we call Jesus, through his life. That's the gospel. That God's kingdom has come. That God's rule and reign has come to earth, has invaded into society, affecting all of society, offering us life as we overcome the things that we cannot overcome, things that we cannot see, and things that we can. 
And it's this gospel that Paul says he is not ashamed of because it brings about salvation. It brings about what he calls a righteousness, this big term that scholars write and fight about throughout history whatever. But the idea there is because of what Christ has done, we are now in a right standing with the Lord. We were divided from him. We were divided from each other. But because of Christ, we now have union with the Lord and with each other. And for Paul, this gospel is so great that he's willing to die for this good news. Look at verse 17. As I said, for, the, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that comes by faith from first to last, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, all I've said so far is to get us to understand this idea of faith, the word that I want to focus on today. So, so what I want to do is I want to quickly talk about what faith is not. And then I want to talk about what faith is. We hear the word faith often. But what is faith? How should we understand biblical faith? If you ask most people today, how would you define faith? Their response would probably be something like this. Faith is believing in what you cannot see. Believing what you cannot see. And there's reason for this because most people will go to Hebrews chapter 11 and there the, the author says, now faith is confidence in what, you, what we hope and have assurance about what we cannot see. So faith is essentially the idea of blind. It's blind faith. Or the idea of take, taking a leap of faith. You just do it. Without seeing it. Without having assurance for what will happen if you just do it. Interesting enough... We then take that idea and we apply it to Jesus. Just believe that he's real. Or just believe that he exists or that he cares about you. But that is not what biblical faith is. Faith is not blind. Faith is not just believing what you cannot understand. But, but, but wait, Emmanuel, E, the writer says here, uh, assurance of what you cannot see. Read a little further. Look at the Bible as a, as a whole. Because your author then goes and says in verse 3, for, for instance, by faith, we know that God created the world. And we can see what God has what? Created. What he's basically saying is, hey, because of what God has done in the past, we can trust him for the future. Because he made the world, because people came be before us who experienced God, who walked with God, we can trust and know that God will be with us in the future. Faith is not blind. You might even say that's kind of idiotic. I told you, just believe. Just believe what you cannot know. What are you talking about? Right? That is not biblical faith, it is not blind. In fact, everyone stand up if you can, on your feet. Okay, now sit down. <laughs> Here's the thing. I'm going to assume most of us stood up and sat down 
without questioning if our chairs are going to break. We just did it. Right? But why did you sit down without questioning it? Because you knew you sat there before. And the chair what? Upheld you. That is faith. We can trust the Lord what we cannot see coming tomorrow or the day after. Why? Because in the past, he's been faithful to us. Even in things that we cannot see or know about. That is faith. Faith is not blind. Faith is backed up by God who is continuously faithful to us even when we are not. I was going to use an, an illustration, but I'm not going to. My wife told me not, not to do it because, you know, kids might be in here. But different story there. Right? If faith is blind, then believing in Jesus is like believing in Loch Ness Monster. Or a particular person who wears red around this time. I'll stop there. Right? That's not what biblical faith is. Faith is grounded in who God is and what God has done. And because of what God has done, we place our faith in him. And for most of us, for most people, again, they would say, hey, this faith is because of what God has done. I'm going to believe that God exists or Christ died for my sins or that he will come back one day. You might call this mental faith. I believe mentally that certain things are true. I'll stop there. That's not faith either. Faith is not just a mental ascent. I have a buddy of mine. Uh, we still talk every now and then. When I first moved out to Denver in 2012 to start Denver Seminary, I wanted to keep playing basketball so I can keep assimilating people <laughs> for as long as possible. I met some group of guys who play every Thursday, every Friday around lunch. And one Friday morning, uh, I arrived. I'm starting to stretch because that's what happens when you get older. And one of the guys approaches me, and he's exhausted. I'm like, whoa, why are you so tired? Now I was out last night. I got drunk. I was dancing with some people, met a girl, and went home with her. I was like, dude, like, why? Then he said this, eat. It's okay. Because I prayed a prayer when I was eight years old. I go to church. I believe that God exists. That Jesus died for my sins. These were his words. Jesus died for my sins. I'm good. He believes that Christ exists. He believes that Christ died for him. He believed that Christ even rose from the dead. But that belief does nothing, has no implication for his life. That's not faith. I mean, James says elsewhere in the book of James... Even the demons believe that God is real. But none of us who say demons are Christians or saved. Why? Because they don't follow. Mental belief is not enough. What you think up here, great, think that. But if that's no implication for your life, it means nothing. You stand up, great. If I said sit down, you don't sit down, that means nothing. If you, what you believe here has some implications for your life. Faith is not simply mentally believing something. Nor is it a blind leap of faith without any evidence. 
then E, what is faith? Bless you. What's biblical faith? Well, the word faith in the original language is pistis. And this word, like the word gospel, was used not just in religious circles, but everyday usage. In fact, it found, most, uh, it found uh, it's, its crescendo use in political speech. About 40 years after Christ died and rose again, there was a war that happened between the Jewish people and the Romans around A.D. 70. And the Romans caught a man named Josephus, who's an ancient historian. In fact, most of what we know about the early Christians come from this guy named Josephus. He talks about how he was captured by the Romans, and they had him essentially convert. And they used him to go and convince his fellow Jewish brothers who were in Jerusalem while it's being sieged to give up their ways and to turn and pledge their faith towards Rome. So he says, my fellow Jewish people, I urge you to repent. Another religious term. I urge you, think of your kids, think of your livelihood, and have faith in Rome. He's not saying, hey, guys, just believe that Rome exists. Just believe that, that, that they're powerful. He's not saying, hey, um, what I'm talking about Rome is just something just to believe in your head, take a leap of faith. He's not saying that. He's saying something else. He is saying, let go of your decisions, of, of what you want, and place your faith or place your allegiance in who? Rome. Faith is allegiance. And I'll define allegiance as, as this. To be loyal and committed as a subject to a superior. To be loyal. To be committed as a subject to someone or something superior. That's what faith is. To have faith or to believe in Jesus means to be allegiance to Jesus. To be allegiant to Jesus. Right? Christ didn't come to just simply be a good teacher. He didn't come simply to lay down his life for no reason. He came because he's the rightful heir. Amen. He is the king. He is the ruler of all things. That's why we say he is the Lord of and king of kings. He's different from all other. And he calls us to have faith, not a mental thing, not a leap of faith that's blind, but to be allegiant to him. Matthew Bates defines biblical faith or allegiance in the following manner. Three things he says about faith. First, it has to be a mental agreement, right? You have to mentally believe or mentally agree that Christ is who he said he is, did what he said he did or, or read that, that he did, and that he is truly Lord. So there is a mental capacity, a mental acknowledgement to who Jesus is. That's followed by something else, a confession of loyalty. That's why Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord, 
now, we read that in, in, in church or quiet times or whatever. Confess that he's Lord. Think about that for a second. What you're saying is it's not Caesar who's Lord in Paul's day. It's not Rome who's Lord. It's the crucified Messiah. Our day. It's not this political party. It's not our government. It's who? Jesus. A confession of loyalty. That I will be loyal. I will be committed to you. Think of your, your wedding vows. Those who are married. Marriage vows. You're confessing something to the person who you believe exists because they're in front of you. Right? And, you. and you believe you're getting married today. right? So you're confessing something, how you will live in light of this particular person. And for most of us, we stop there. Mentally believe, we, we confess with our mouths, and we stop there. That's the third part. Probably the most important part for most of us here. Embodied fidelity. Embodied fidelity. If your faith is not lived out, the question you should ask yourself, do I actually have faith? If I say I have faith, do I live, but don't live it out, do I have faith? I told my wife, if, if I told her, I love you, honey, but I'm never around. I'm never there emotionally. I am abusive. Would you tell me in good conscience that, E, you are a great husband? No, you wouldn't. If our faith is not embodied or lived out, the question is, do we actually have faith? When I turned 18, uh, we became citizens of this country. It's a process that some of you guys may know. It's a long process to become a citizen. As an 18-year-old, I was responsible for myself while my siblings were under my parents' authority. I remember going to a room, and a person asked me a couple questions about the history of the United States, which were super easy, basic questions. What's the color of the flag? Uh, red, white, and blue. The first president, right, George Washington, uh, and so forth. You may stand up. The guy said, son, what you're about to do seems very nonchalant, and you'll forget about it, but it's crucial. Because what you're about to do right now, you are switching your allegiance from the Congo to this nation. What that means is when you live in this nation as a citizen of this nation, you cannot do what we do in the, what you did in the Congo. You must abide by the rules of this nation. You have to live as a citizen of this nation. So I stood up, made the pledge to become a citizen, and moved on. The implication is, as I live in this country, I must be a faithful citizen of this nation. For example, got to pay taxes. I hate it, but it's a reality. If I don't do that, my being a faithful, allegiant citizen, no. Our faith has to be lived out. It has to be embodied. In fact, we show our faith by what we do and how we live. There's a cool story in the Gospels. Um, Christ is in the room with people and it's so full and so packed. And, and there's four friends who have a, a friend who can't walk. All right, they want to take him to come see Jesus. And so they get to the house. The house is packed. They can't get anywhere. They climb the roof, break the roof apart, and lower the friend down 
And the text says this. Jesus saw their faith. Saw their faith? Their mental thing? Okay, sure, he's God. Okay, I, I, I get that. But he saw their, their mental, no, it's not what the text says. Saw their faith. Well, what, what, what was their faith? Their action to destroy someone's roof. To believe <laughs> that this Jesus figure would actually heal their friend. In Ephesians, Paul talks to the Christians and says, Christians, your faith is being shown throughout the empire. Wait, your, your mental belief? No, your action, your life. Princess Chen says that best, true faith manifests itself through our actions. If you truly have faith, your life will show it. Does it mean you're perfect? Absolutely not. Will you make mistakes? Absolutely. But there's a progression of where you're continuously submitting and letting go of what you desire, what the king desires, and what he wills take place. Faith is allegiance. Mentally, confession, and embodied. And saying, Christ is Lord. Christ is king. Everything else doesn't come close to his rulership. So what's that mean for us today? So if you knew and say, you know what? I, I prayed a prayer when I was eight. And for most of my life, I, I had this mental acknowledgement. But my life, if I truly investigated my life, I would show that I'm not really living out what I say or what I think I do. If you're there, I'm glad you're here. So most of my, it might mean that, yeah, I, I'm allegiant to Jesus, but to something else. The question then becomes, what is Christ calling you to? Namely, to let go of what you desire for something greater. Is that easy to do? Absolutely not. But it promises something great. It promises something we cannot see right now. But because God is faithful, one day we will. And he promises what is happening here at Providence. A family. People coming together. Letting go of their desires, their preferences. Because the allegiance to the cosmic ruler, to the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me? Before I pray, I just want to say, if this message has touched your heart in any way, and you would like information or more ideas of, hey, what's it mean to be allegiant to Christ? Or you just need prayer in general. I want to invite you after the benediction to come and pray as members of the prayer team will be available and would love to minister to you. With our eyes closed and heads bowed, where are you at with the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it just a mental thing for you? 
simply a, a talking exercise? Or are you actually embodying it in how you live? If someone examined your life, would they say that, hey, you truly are allegiant to Christ? Or would they look at you sideways? When the Lord calls us, he calls us to come and to die. To let go of what we desire. And in the process, truly find life. And what we long for. Lord Jesus, this morning, wherever we're at, my prayer is that you would touch our hearts, our minds. Touch all that we are. And affect us not for our own glory, but for yours. That we would be people who are allegiant first and foremost to you. And in this way, affect our culture, affect our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our family members and our friends. Not for our glory, but for you, King Jesus. King over all things. All this for your glory, for your renown. 